You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Okay, thank you. Uh, Please stand for this morning's reading. Uh, As you can see, you can find this reading on page 1092 of the Church Bible. We're reading from Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look in it. I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look in it. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep, look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. He had seven horns and had seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He went and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. When he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and also of the living creatures and of the elders. Their number was countless thousands, plus thousands of thousands. They said with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and blessing. I heard every creature in heaven on earth, under the sea, under the earth, on the sea, and everything in them, say, Blessing and honour and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb for ever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped him. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, we will do what we always do and just read a little and talk a little and read a little more and see what God has to reveal to us this morning. One of my favorite games when I was a kid was um, Guess Who? Anybody? It's not a question, it's a, the name of the game is Guess Who? 
One, two, three. I love that game. Um, my kids play it to this day. And uh, if you don't know, it's a sort of a game of deduction where you have two boards uh, facing one another uh, for two players and you have this, these rows of tiles with different characters uh, on them and you take a card and so does your opponent and through deduction you have to guess which card your opponent is holding and it's through a series of yes or no answers. Um, so, you know, is it a man? If the answer is yes, you can knock down all of the, the lady tiles, all right? And so you do that. My favorite question when I was a kid was, do they have a bulbous nose? Which uh, is the only thing I remember about playing that game, um, because bulbous is such a great, great word. Um, it was a really bad question to ask, because um, only a couple of people had a bulbous nose. Bernard, I think, had a bulbous nose. Um, it's all coming back to me. Anyway, um, the, this is the point of my story. The Bible particularly through the Old Testament, but right up into our passage today, sort of plays out like a bit of a game of guess who when it comes to the identity of the Messiah. You have all of these prophecies throughout the Old Covenant, beginning way back in Genesis 3, um, and, uh, and then throughout through the prophets, and, and, um, and, and even right up, in, including the last book of the Bible that we're looking at here, these clues as to the identity of the Messiah. And what we're going to see today is that, that there's only one tile left. And the revelation of this chapter is that Jesus, the lamb that was slain, is the Messiah, is the Lord. So we're going to jump in. Let me just remind you from last week, because this is the context for this chapter as well. Remember last week in chapter 4, we're in the throne room of God. John is given this second vision, and he's, he's transported to the very throne room of God, which sits at the center of the universe. Everything emanates out from the throne itself and the one seated on the throne. In uh, chapter 4, verse 2 to 3, he says, Immediately I was in the Spirit, this is John, and there was a throne in heaven and someone was seated on it. The one seated there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian stone, a rainbow that had the appearance of emerald surrounded the throne. And then he goes on and, and gives us the scene built out from the throne. And uh, we're going to see this morning the vision gets broadened to the very sort of edges of the universe. And so in the throne room, still there, still observing what's going on, we pick it up at verse 1 of chapter 5. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of the one on, uh, seated on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides sealed with seven seals. This scroll is representative of, symbolic of God's will. Quite literally, uh, it's a will like one would write, uh, many of us would, would have a will, especially those of us who are starting to grey a little bit, we're, we're thinking more about this now, uh, our days are numbered and so we, we write wills because we want to be able to direct what happens after we die um, as it pertains to the stuff that we have, right, this is a will. In the Greek, it's interesting, the Greek language this is written in, the same word is for will and covenant. And those two things are very similar, and particularly when it comes to God and his plans for human history. It's a will that's a covenant, it's a promise, it's a, uh, a plan for the unfolding of the universe, eternity past to eternity future. And so you have this will, 
scroll written on both sides, which is weird because in the first century, you just couldn't write on both sides of a scroll. Uh, they didn't have that kind of technology, but this is particular, it's different, it's special. And you, can, you know it's special because it's sealed with seven seals. Not just one seal, but seven seals, seven being the number of completion. You see seven you know, right throughout this book, we've seen it before. Uh, later on in this passage, the Holy Spirit will be described as the seven spirits of God. So, you have this will, and you have it sealed. And the thing about a will is that it requires an, an executor to put it into effect. Right? You guys ever had the experience of being an executor for somebody's will? No one in this room. All right, I can tell you about Ah, there we go. The hands work. Um, I, I've spent the last two and a half years with my older brother and my dad executing the will of my godmother. It was an enormous will. She was uh, both uh, quite wealthy and very generous. And so there were 10 beneficiaries as well as like, countless charities that she had left everything to. Uh, she didn't have children of her own or, and never, was never married. And so this was a complicated task that we had. But in, in spite of the fact that there are all these different beneficiaries, it was up to us to see that the will was done. We paid astronomical amounts of money to lawyers who did some of the legwork, but ultimately it was only us, the signatories, the executors, who could make sure that it was done. She couldn't do it herself, of course, because she has passed away, and so it was on us. She had uh, selected us to be the only ones who could see it done, and it took a long time, but it is done now. And this is the picture we get here in the very throne room of God. We have God's will for all of human history sealed up, and, and it's not just like anyone can walk into the room and open it. That is, have it executed, put it into effect. God, as part of his will, has determined that only one can open the seals. Only one can put it into effect. And so, in effect, God's will in this vision is sort of bound up with the one who is the executor, with the one who can open the scroll. And so we see what happens next. This is kind of tense right now because God's will is on the line. Verse 2 to 4. John says, I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals, put it into effect, be the executor. And he goes on, but no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look in it. I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look in it. I'm sure you've had the experience of kind of devastation that comes when you have a plan, you have a will for something, and you can see it kind of going the way that you wanted it to go, and then something happens, perhaps out of the blue, that completely derails your plans, and you're left shocked, disappointed, 
maybe hopeless. That's how John feels here. He weeps and weeps because John is, is, is a godly man. He wants to see God's will put into effect. He wants to see God's will executed. But no one, not in heaven, earth, under the earth, no one, no one can even look at it, never mind execute it. When I think about this kind of experience of grief, my mind just instantly goes back to being a seven-year-old boy sitting in the Austin hospital. My mum had been there for a while now, being treated for cancer. And I remember very distinctly the fact that she, in my mind at least, had been getting better. She seemed to have like rallied and she, she was just looking better. Like the, 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 just the, the look on her face was different. And... Uh, my expectation was that we, you know, it was going to be okay. That kind of nightmare would be woken up from eventually. And then, just totally out of the blue, and again, this is just my 35-year-old memory, but I remember being sort of ushered with my family into a room at Heidelberg House there uh, at the Austin in, in Heidelberg and, and being sat down and there were... I don't know, a doctor, a nurse, sat down with us and just said the uh, those fateful words that um, there's nothing we can do. (laughs) What do you mean there's nothing we can do? (laughs) She's getting better. She's going to get better. I just remember sitting there in shock. There's nothing we can do. She's going to go home, and she's going to go home to die. And I really, like one of the strongest memories I have attached to that is travelling in the car in the back seat, back home. It's raining appropriately. And then a bunch of people came over to our house, I guess, to, to be there for us. And I remember seeing people doing the most normal thing in the world, which is chatting and laughing and catching up. And I just remember thinking, how can anyone ever laugh again? <laughs> Seemed like an offense to the universe. So, you know, we have these plans and we, and we have in our minds this sort of, or at least I do, this, this is like endemic to me. I have this idealistic vision of the way things ought to be. And yet, a spanner is often thrown in the works and we're left feeling hopeless. And so it is with John. He weeps and weeps. How is this will going to be done? What guarantee is there that God's perfect and good plan for the universe, both in redemption and in judgment, what guarantee is there that it's going to be done? No one can be found worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. Until, verse 5, then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. 
more clues in the game of guess who? The identity of the Messiah. It's the Lion of Judah. It's the root of David. You might remember from the very end of the book of Genesis, Genesis 49, you have Jacob there, his 12 sons, um, and uh, he knows he's about to die, and he needs to have someone to sort of take the torch and um, to be God's, God's man, to keep unfolding God's plan, not just for Israel, but for the nations, that they would be blessed, that they would be gathered into the throne room. And it's like, a, it's like an episode of succession. Anybody? Succession? One dude? All right, it's you and me. All right, so succession, I, it, I, I like it. Um, I'm not even going to do the preacher's caveat, like, well, you know, it's got some bad language. Just, you know, if you like good drama, Succession is a good show, right? And, uh, and, and it's all about a media mogul who is um, trying to figure out how to pass on his enormous uh, legacy to one of his kids, all of whom are horrible. In fact, everyone in the whole show is horrible, okay? And so you have Jacob there with his sons, and, and he goes to his first son, and normally it's the first son who inherits everything, right? But he looks at Reuben and he says, sorry, buddy, it's not you. He's he stuffed up and kind of uh, disqualified himself from the role. And so then he looks at his next couple of sons, and he sees um, Simeon and Levi, and he's like, it's not going to be you guys either. You guys are way too unbalanced, they're, they're really hot-headed, hot-blooded, you know, sword-wielding sons. And um, like Logan Roy in the story, in the, in, the, in, the, in the show, he says, you know, I love you, but you're not serious people. And so he passes over them as well. And then he gets to Judah. And he says to Judah, you're like a lion. You're like a lioness. You're like a lion cub. You're going to be the one that carries God's promise in this way. And from Judah will come one greater than the Lion of Judah, the fulfillment of the Lion of Judah. Same with the, the root of David. It's interesting here because we know Jesus as the shoot of David. We know that Jesus comes from the Lion of David. But here you have him described as the root of David. It's like, remember in the, the recent series we did through the I Am statements and, and Jesus like blows the entire world up by saying, before Abraham was, I am? Similar thing here. He is the shoot. He is the fruit. He is down the line from David and yet somehow he's also the root. He's the foundation on which David's own dynasty was built, his own kingdom so you have both the lion of Judah and the root of David, someone finally who is worthy to step into that throne room and to take up the scroll. And so you look, you sort of pan across and, 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 you, and you expect to see a roaring lion. You expect to see Aslan, imperious, powerful, supreme, king of the jungle. That's what you expect to see, and yet, like so often in the book of Revelation, you expect to see one thing, and what you actually see, what John sees and tells us about is something 
very different, verse 6 to 8. Then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders he had seven horns and seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He went and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. When he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. There is no roaring lion to be seen, no conquering king, but a lamb, a lamb that's been slaughtered, slaughtered yet standing. You notice that? Not slumped, not heaped, not swimming in a pool of his own blood, but a slaughtered lamb that is standing. This is Jesus. Jesus, the lamb that was slain. Jesus, who was dead but had, has risen again. In my reading of the book of Revelation that we went through in the first week, remember the different ways of reading it, in my reading of this, this is the ascension. This is sort of like we have Earth's view of the ascension. Jesus risen from the dead, 40 days of ministry, and then ascended to heaven. I think this is heaven's view of the ascension, looking for someone who's worthy to open the scroll, someone who's worthy to enact God's will, and into the throne room steps the ascended Lord Jesus, like a lamb that's been slaughtered. Remember what he said about himself way back in chapter 1, verse 17 to 18. John says, when I, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys to death and Hades, to the grave itself. The one who has conquered death now holds the keys to it. He owns it. A slaughtered but standing lamb is the only one who is worthy to open that scroll, to enact, to execute God's will. This picture of God, that we're just saying about it, right? The lion and the lamb, the lion and the lamb. Lion-like in his conquering of all things, including the one thing that conquers each one of us. Death itself. Standing, appearing like a lamb that's been slaughtered. This is precious to us at this church. This, this, um, this image of Jesus really is kind of threaded through our identity as a church. We are Red Door Church. This is very much picking up on that imagery of the, the Passover, the book of Exodus, a lamb, perfect lamb, slain for each of the households of the people of Israel, anyone who would put their trust in God's promise of protection, of redemption, of salvation, the, the blood painted on those doorposts, 
all of it just whispering, shadow-like, about the fulfillment that would come when the, the, the capital L lamb was slain. Slain for us, slain for our redemption, to, to buy us out of slavery, not to Egypt, but to sin, to death. Jesus is worthy to open the scroll. Why? Verse 9. They sang, that is the elders and the, the creatures, they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? Because you were slaughtered. How upside down is that? Contrast that with how we judge worthiness. Who gets to stand on the top of the podium and get the gold medal? The victor, the conqueror, the, the best, the fittest, the strongest. And all of those things are true of Jesus, and yet they are true through, they come about through defeat, through death, through slaughter. Because you were slaughtered and you purchased people, like the people in this room, Purchased, bought, blood bought. You purchase people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's why he's worthy to open the scroll. That's why he's worthy to be the executor of God's will. Everything that Exodus pointed forward to is fulfilled right here and right now. And they get it. You know, it just, it just occurred to me just now as I read that verse. They get it in a way that I just long for us to get it. When you read this chapter, or these two chapters, what you notice is all of heaven, all of the four living creatures representative of all of God's creation, the elders representative of God's old covenant and new covenant people, the myriads of myriads, thousands upon thousands and billions of angels, all of them respond in the same way, which is to fall down and worship. The only thing missing from this picture is all of us. So this is going on right now in the throne room of heaven, and yet we are walking around stumbling through this life and we're the only ones who aren't doing this. And we get a little taste of it here on a Sunday morning if you're awake enough to experience it. But the whole mission of this church exists because we're not doing this all the time. We want to make all of life all about Jesus because it is. Like we just want to live in the reality of the universe and stop Wasting our lives. By the way, here's another thing. It's all free. If you have someone, God bless them. Uh, come to your house and knock on your door and want to share the real truth with you about God and Jesus and salvation. And they tell you that your understanding of it is mistaken and that Jesus isn't really God. 
that Jesus isn't really divine and we shouldn't worship him as God because that belongs to the only true God and Jesus is special and, but created and not to be worshipped. Please just read them chapter 5. Because if they're right, then the creatures and the elders and the angels are wrong. And rather than receiving their worship, the lamb should get out of there quick. Not only is this true, like doctrinally true, but it's real and it's happening now. I just want to be a part of it. The response to the lamb being unveiled, revealed, the apocalypse of the lamb as the one single one in the universe who is worthy, the response is exactly what it should be, all right? It's the only response that you can have. Verse 11 to 13, then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and also of the living creatures and of the elders. Their number was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. My kids would just say, infinity, They said with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, and everything in them say blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever forever and ever forever and ever some translations have uh, to the ages of ages like that's poetic to the ages of ages Not just like infinity and it's just like this big blob of time that goes on forever, but it's like, no, no, it's sequential in a way that our own kind of judgment of time is sequential, right? So for, for, for this age and the age to follow and the age after that, the ages of ages forever and ever and ever, Jesus is worthy. He lives forever. He reigns and rules forever because he was slaughtered and because he lives again to the ages of ages. It's hard for us to get our head around that kind of timeline. We have our own kind of way of interpreting history or of, um, of uh, quantifying it. We tend to do it in ages. Right, if you're a history fan, you'll know that we have sort of allotted different ages to human history. And over those ages, we have these sort of great men and women of history, great rulers. And they are great in their own way. But you know what? You know what? You know what? All of those rulers have in common like Alexander the Great, 
and Julius Caesar, Ramses, and Genghis Khan, and Napoleon Bonaparte, and Stalin, and Hitler, and Pol Pot, and Queen Elizabeth II. Do you know what they all have in common? Guess. Exactly. They're all dead. They rule and they reign for a short time and then they're dead. Hades has them. The grave has them in its grip. But Jesus reigns to the ages of ages. There is no end to his dynasty. There is no end to his reign. And that's why we can be here confident of God's will that it will be done to the ages of ages, including today. For the rest of this day, you can be confident that God's will is being done because Jesus is worthy to enact it and he never dies. He's the supreme one. He's more powerful than Satan and his schemes, as powerful as they are, and they are. More powerful than any government, state parliament, any king, any dictator. Is it Psalm 2? God looks at the rulers of the world as they kind of jostle for power and take, you know, assuming his power. And he, what does he do? It's giggles. He laughs because he is the only supreme, eternal ruler to the ages of ages. So even when you get the word from the nurse in the little room that there's nothing they can do, or whatever the plans are that you have that get derailed, I don't promise you understanding. But I do promise you that you can trust that all of these things that are happening are being overseen by a sovereign king who will never die never leave you, never forsake you. And we're going to see in the rest of this book that things get dark. And in fact, a lot of the darkness comes as a result of God's will being done. There's a lot of judgment that comes with God's will. Redemption, yes, but judgment as well. And things get pretty dark. But over all of this, we need to keep Jesus in his place. He is supreme over everything that happens for all of time. And so we can respond ourselves, even in the midst of living this broken and, and bitter world, grabbing shafts of beauty where we can find them, even in the midst of this life, we can, with these creatures and elders and angels, we can stand together and sing praises to the only one who's worthy. There will be times of weeping, as there was for John. But even through it, we can trust. 
in the only one who's worthy. And in response to all this, verse 14, the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. You might like to fall down in response to seeing a vision of Jesus like this. I would invite you to, we're going to take some time now to stop and reflect. We'll have time for singing a little uh, later on, but now we're just going to listen. Listen for God's voice. Listen to the words that Joshua's going to sing. Consider and contemplate the vision that John has given us. Perhaps for the first time, you can reckon with who Jesus really is. I mean, who he is right now. Sovereign, Lord, God and King, the Lion and the Lamb. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this opportunity that you've given us to open your word together. It is precious, and I know, Lord, we take it for granted, but please help us to delight in your word, to see it as that, that sweet, dripping honeycomb that it is, that we would be able to eat and digest and so be changed more and more into the likeness of your son. And indeed, more and more into the likeness of those creatures, those elders, those angels, whose whole existence is orientated around the worship of the Lamb and the one who sits on the throne. Lord, may it be so for us. We want to be a community of people helping people make all of life all about Jesus. May it be so. Please do it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.